Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Welcome to a very special edition of the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital Advisors. Today, we'll dive into the archives, reliving highlights from the past year, and serving up some of the most inspiring and useful nuggets of wisdom from our seriously talented guests. This podcast is all about you, the advisor, but as your host this year, I have to say it's been an absolute joy and privilege to hear all your stories. And we at Harbor can't wait to revisit some of our favorite moments with all of you. Joining me today is my colleague, Colleen O'Donnell. Colleen is the head marketing business management here at Harbor and in charge of all the behind the scenes work to make this podcast a success. Thanks for joining me today, Colleen. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Let's get to it. On the Active Advisor, we love to know how it all began and what set our guests on their path into the world of investing. So let's take a look back at some of our guests' journeys from their first money memory to see how they got started in finance. Yeah, Brian, I love that we kick off every episode with this question. Everybody has a different story to tell about where their journey began and the different motivations and drivers behind the work that they love. Completely. And on that note, these three clips demonstrate that so well. First up, we have Frank Toth, principal and COO of Capital Conclusions, where some good old family TV time sparked his interest in investing. Take a listen. I guess it really started when I was young. My dad and my grandfather used to sit around a lot and talk about you know stocks and investing. And there was a show that came on, and I think it was PBS TV. It was like the Louis Rukeyser Report back in the early 80s. And I was always intrigued because he'd come on, he'd start talking about stocks, he'd seen all these green lines on TV and talking about money and people making money. It always intrigued me. So I used to sit when I was little in front of the TV and sort of watch this because my father and my grandfather would talk about it. And I tried to get involved in the conversations. And I guess that's really the first memory I have. And that sort of gravitated towards sitting with my grandfather and my dad because, well, I call it the old days. I mean, there's people older than me, but my father was an architect and they had this sort of graph paper. I don't know this technical term for it. I can't remember, but he used to go out and he'd write down the stocks on this paper and he'd write how much the stock was worth and whether it went up or went down that day. And he used to sit down and show me what he was doing. And, you know, I really, I guess from that point, you know, became more and more intrigued. And from there, I, I really developed an interest in it. Awesome. It's a great story. Yeah. It sounds like a great way to gain interest in the profession. So you begin your career in the wirehouse firm. What did you learn in those early years that you still think about or are applying to your practice now, 20 some odd years later? That's a great question. I've always been a big proponent of trying to, and maybe it's the analytical side of me, just learning everything I can about whatever I'm doing, right? So I think that the step when I wound up getting a position in Merrill, it was really important for me to start at the bottom and work my way up. And one of the crucial things I found is from an operational standpoint, I, I needed to learn, you know, how is this business run? And what are all the components that go into it from the bottom? Because I figured, you know, one day if this was a career, which, you know, I certainly wanted to move forward with, then I needed to know, okay, how did XYZ work? And operations are, you know, primary function of how business runs. So that's sort of, you know, my role when I stepped in at Merrill was from the operational side. And then from there, I work with some advisors and learning more than on the financial side. But I would say I spent a couple of years on the operational side and you know, gained a ton of knowledge. As did I. It's a great way to learn the business from the is. bottom up. Yep, correct. Louis Rukeyser. That name definitely takes me back. 
got to admit, more than a few years. Yeah, and I think Frank was also our top chef of the year. He has his <laughs> own Instagram page, which is at Dad Doing Dinner. And I would not view it if you're hungry. That is, that's not the time to go viewing his Instagram page, but you are right. He has a great Instagram following, but it will also make you very hungry. Okay, next up is Sarin Barsumian, LPL financial advisor and founder of SMB Financial Strategies. Her story probably resonates with a lot of folks who didn't have that family catalyst like Frank did. Yeah, she came into the world of investing as a college student by learning a hard lesson. And I think it really opened up her eyes to new possibilities. And I think it even enabled her to create a new path for herself. I thinking about that because I've listened to previous podcasts that you hosted and I was like, what is my first money memory? And maybe it's a little sad, but my first money memory doesn't really come until the age of 18. So it's freshman year of college and I have a $2,000 CD that recently matured. I take this $2,000 CD and I spend every single penny of it on Christmas gifts for my family. So $2,000 might not seem like a lot of money these days, but we're talking 21 years ago and I was 18 years old. So this was a really big turning point for me in hindsight because it really just shed a lot of light for me about how little I knew about money, saving and investing. I honestly just thought that you earn money to spend it. I didn't have any sort of example from my parents because they moved to this country in their 30s and they it's something that they themselves didn't understand either. So one of the things I often think about is, you know, what trajectory or what path would I personally be on if I didn't come into this industry and know what I know now? I'd like to build on those early days. Can you tell us kind of about the journey that led you to starting up your own firm? It was never my intention to start my own firm. So I started as an advisor straight out of college. And at the time, I was obviously young and I didn't know a lot. And they told me, if you want to be an advisor, you got to go get training. So, okay. And at the time, Ameriprise Financial was one of the big firms that did a lot of training. So I started my career there. I knew that I didn't want to stay there long term, that eventually I would want to go somewhere that wasn't so big and didn't have proprietary products. Uh, but then the 07, 08 market crash occurred. Clients were freaking out. I was freaking out. You know, I was two years in as an advisor. Here I am telling people what to do with their money. I distinctly remember getting off the phone with some clients and just crying because I had a lot of conviction about what I was telling them, but I, having never gone through a market like that, I was questioning, is this actually going to work out? But what happened was two older advisors that I used to work with at Ameriprise, they left to join a group office and they recruited me over to this group office. Long story short, that group office was not a good fit for me. And so there came a point where I had to decide, do I just walk away? Do I just try something different? I felt a, a bit scorned with my experience at this group office. I wasn't ready to walk away from my client relationship. So what I decided to do was just go independent and just kind of take care of my clients and put my head down and do the work. What I love most about Sadine's story is that her first big spend was on gifts for her family. And in getting to know Sadine on the episode, I think it really tells you the type of person that she is. Yes, and it's such an important story to tell of coming from a family where there wasn't necessarily a lot of discussion or even experience around investing. 
which is a family dynamic that Serene was able to change as she came into the profession. What I also really loved was her explanation of the firm's tagline, which is clarity to take action. I think it was a great episode for so many reasons. All right, next up, we have Nicole Mindorf, who joined us earlier this year. Here, she tells us about how she once thought the tooth fairy had left her a fake bill. This story from Nicole really takes me right back to my own memories of the tooth fairy as a kid. And what I also love about Nicole's story is how resilience is the driving force behind her truly incredible story. Relates to the tooth fairy. <laughs> I, I woke up one morning and I had this little tiny pillow that I'd put my tooth in the night before. And in the morning I woke up and uh, there was a $2 bill in there. And I went running down the hallway yelling, I got gypped, I got ripped off. <laughs> and the tooth fairy left me fake money. And I'm like, just upset. And my dad is like, Nikki, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. And he's like, what's going on? Well, I got a $2 bill. I got fake money from the tooth fairy. And he's like, come with me, come with me. And he led me into his bedroom. And on his dresser, he had like this top hidden drawer. And he pulled it out and it was full of $2 bills. And he's like, I collect them. They're real. They're special. And so that was my first, first memory. And so when I had children, I then gave them a $2 bill one of the years as they were growing up to have a similar experience as well. <laughs> That's great. That is absolutely awesome. Uh, yeah. And $2 bills are special. You are 100% right. I tell my kids that and we've got them that for their first tooth as well. Oddly enough. That's great. Before we dig in, I'd like to go a little bit more about you and your business model. You have an unbelievable story of success in the face of overcoming extreme adversity. If you're comfortable with it, could you possibly share the story of resilience and the origin of the Live It list? So I tell people, if you look up the word resilient in the dictionary, my name is right there. And the Live It list came about, I never planned on it being anything big, but it came out of the worst moments of my life. On August 4th of 2010, that was the first time that the 911 phone call went through. And my daughter was six months old. My son was two at the time. And I had to become to the realization and I had to have awareness that I was a victim of domestic violence. And my now ex-husband was my OSJ branch manager. And so one, dealing with domestic violence is difficult, but then you mix money in it and then you mix being working together and having this person as your branch manager was extremely difficult. And so I got the kids to bed one night and I sat down. I'm like, how did I end up here? <laughs> like from the outside, my life looked perfect. Living in a big house, you know, boat, four wheelers, cars. I was doing a radio show. I had written probably, I think, one or two books at the time. And so from the outside, you know, life looked amazing. But from the inside, I hated every aspect of it. Nothing I had picked out. The house I didn't pick out, the car, the boats, all of the stuff that we had. And it really meant nothing to me because I wasn't happy. And so I'm like, what am I going to do about this? And so I decided, I'm like, I'm going to rewrite my bucket list because I always had lists. I was a former figure skater. And I was blessed to have a coach that had her PhD in psychology. So she worked with me so much of the power of the mind. And I just was always focused on motivational speakers. And I just always had lists. And so I rewrote my bucket list. Well, when you say the term bucket list, people think you're dying. And I, in my opinion, had already died inside. And I'm like, everything in my life is so negative. I'm like, I can't 
tell people I'm doing something on my bucket list. I need to put a positive spin on this. So I just started calling it the live it list. Well, then I learned one in three Americans is happy. I learned if you spend more money in experiences, you're going to be happier than if you spend money on things. And so it was this aha moment for me of, oh my gosh, I never planned on being a wealth advisor, but here's how I can love being a wealth advisor. I loved helping people. And I said, oh my gosh, like, you know, we, we do financial plans for every client, every client, then yes, we can look at retirement and education planning, but we can ask them what's on their limit list and help put a positive spin on the bucket list and help people be happy and find their happiness. So out of the worst moment in my life actually became one of the best tools that we use. And it's grown into this huge thing that I never, never, ever imagined or expected. Nicole's concept of the live it list was also one that has stuck with me throughout the year. All right, switching gears here to a new topic. Let's take a look at some of the best and most surprising advice given by our guests. First up, we have Brian Portnoy, who is founder of Shaping Wealth. Brian tells us why emotional intelligence is a highly valuable asset as a financial advisor. Yeah, Brian, what's really interesting here is that emotional intelligence and behavioral finance were two very common themes throughout the year with a lot of our guests and really seems to be the cornerstone of how our advisors are building deep and lasting relationships with their clients. I would encourage any advisor listening to think about emotional intelligence as a skill, just like your vertical leap or chess. You might not be Michael Jordan, you might not be Gary Kasparov, but you can be slightly better at these sorts of things. Our IQ is sort of fixed, leave it at that. Our EQ is not. And so when you think about the different dimensions of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, and relationship skills, these are all things that in one way or another you can invest in so that you can show not only show up better for your clients, but serve yourself better. Engage in more self-awareness training. Understand that where you're coming from We've seen this over hundreds of different clients. When an advisor engages in more self-awareness, knowing what their money story is, really come to terms with like, why are you even, why are you an advisor to begin with? How did you end up here? What are the types of clients you like working with versus not? Dozens of questions that you can use to explore. That then has an amazing halo effect for the client engagement. So one thing I'd say is, and Shaping Wealth is by no means the only purveyor of emotional intelligence training. We just happen to cater to the wealth industry. So we're quite knowledgeable about the specific issues that help it, that occur at advice firms. So yeah, one thing is think of EQ or EI as a skill that you can be better at. And if you think of the ultimate wise sages of this space, Oprah or Brene Brown, who are the highest EQs in the world. They're just so wise and have so much perspective. The goal is not to be them. The goal is to be a slightly better version of yourself. I can guarantee you, Brian, people will notice if you're doing that work and it's going to have amazing benefits. Next up is Bruce Lee, founder of Quebec Wealth Management, who tells us the one question every advisor really needs to be asking themselves. Yeah, what I love about Bruce's advice here is that it isn't just advice for another advisor. It's actually something that Bruce has ingrained into his firm and something that they frequently anchor back to as a team and as a business practice. Once you get over the hype, of, this is something that actually I'd love to give all independent advisors who are thinking about becoming independent advisors. I hear in the marketplace, oh, you can make more money, you can make more money, you can make more money, you know, being an independent advisor. I think that's the wrong reason to go independent. Because once you're done 
with calling your firm River Tree or some obscure name. And then you could show everyone in a field having a good time and everything like that. And you settle back in your seat. You're going to ask yourself, what am I really good at? What do I really want to be? And so I think you and your team needs to sit down and ask yourself the question, because banks are, we're trying to be all things to all people. And by the way, they should. They manage trillions of dollars. You know, if they said, we're just dealing with entrepreneurs, that'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. We're just dealing with retirees. But the RIAs that I've known, I have a lot of respect for a lot of independent RIAs. You even see me on LinkedIn, you know, pushing like to a lot of RIAs because I appreciate their differentiation in the marketplace. And so the ones that I find that are very successful target the market that they feel they're really good at. That I don't want to overuse the word passion, but something they're committed to, if that makes any sense. And that they feel that they have particular edge in that particular space. And clients can smell that. And so they can intuitively feel that. Why? Because as you start drilling deeper and deeper into the due diligence questions a client may ask, that client's going to go, you really know this space, don't you? And I go, yeah, for no question. And so we actually, in our weekly and monthly you know, gatherings together as a team, we always ask ourselves the question, are we really good at that? Because if we're not, let's just not do it. And let's have the courage to tell the prospect, we're just not good at that because our brand actually means this is kind of who we are. So that would be my advice to those going independent. Sit down, think about what you're really good at, and then just keep going after that particular vertical. Because in our situation, when I was at the banks, we kind of covered everybody. If anyone had an asset, we'd bring it in. And that doesn't make it bad again. It just makes it different. But by focus, us focusing on this particular market, I mean, the average age of our client is, you know, in the 40s, so to speak, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. They're aspirational in nature. They're looking for the 2.0 in their world. But that differs farther from an executive at a company who is retiring and worth a lot of money too. It's not that I don't have the passion for it. I just don't know if we have the bandwidth to deal with an individual like that. And so the beauty of independence is every single independent can be that. It's great for the consumers, what I'm trying to say. The consumer can really go out and say, okay, this is who I am. This is the firm I'm going with. This is who I am. This is the firm I'm going with. Whereas when you go to kind of the monolithic five big banks, you be kind of become one. And I don't think that fits. Very sound advice here from Bruce that you can really apply to anything that you do, which is understanding what you're good at and being intentional about it. All right, next clip. Patrick Wong, CAIA and Director of Investments at Source Financial Advisors, talks about how being humble and computer coding can set you up for success as an advisor. I actually remember recording this clip with Patrick, and what really resonated with me was what he says about what to do and how to react when somebody knows more than you do. I'll say quick answer, probably coding, uh, programming, I would say is huge. It's changed the way I kind of view things. Longer answer, I'd say, and it is cliche, uh, but it's just working hard and being humble, I think is just so important. I don't really believe in luck, but it happens when you work hard, right? And I and I think that that's such an important piece of this. You know, I'd always wanted to be in this industry. I'd always wanted to be in this industry when in school, but I graduated from UK, I was in 2008. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of jobs for me. And I had to do some odd jobs, you know, coming out of school. It, you know, it, it was basically whatever I could find at the time. 
And I feel like I'd never really had the pedigree to do, to get into these big shops. And it's really, you know, I got lucky that Morgan even gave me an opportunity. I owe, owe Morgan a lot, but, you know, I started off as a financial advisor trainee and I was, you know, I was hammering the phones for six hours a day, six days a week. I was, you know, I, I know now that you can lick enough envelopes and you'll get woozy, right? So I was just sending mailers out. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think a lot about that is that I worked really hard at the beginning and, and I still do now, but you know, at the beginning, it's about, you know, trying to, you know, yeah. trying to figure things out. And, and if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have, you know, got, gotten an opportunity to land on one of the teams. And if I hadn't done that, then it wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have been you know, given the opportunity to move to Greystone and, and I, and I wouldn't be sitting here today. So what I would say is that, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep working hard. And, you know, sometimes you don't, you don't know, you don't know when you're going to get lucky, but gosh, don't mess up your opportunity is what I would say. So, you know, work hard and, and just, and the second part to that is just stay humble. I think there's a lot of, I think a lot of it, there's a lot of ego sometimes. And, and I think that, there's always more to learn and there's always someone that's going to know more than you. And that's just the name of the game. And I think you can, you can take that two ways. You can say, Hey, you know, I, I, I know you may know a little bit more than me, but I'm in the position that I'm in. So this is how it's going to work. But I think there's also another avenue that, that you can actually take that in and say, okay, I want to know this. You know, I, I want to, I want to pick your brain with it. And I think that, you know, that's, I hope that that's the avenue I've tried to take down is that learning from all these amazing meetings and all these amazing people that I have the opportunity to be able to sit in front of and, and pick their brain really and, and really to learn some of the best ideas that they've had. So yeah, the sh short, long answer to that. Yeah. So hopefully that, that kind of, uh, kind of, yeah, that's how I kind of feel about that. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for working hard and staying humble. Totally agree. And I think Patrick was certainly one of our most humble guests this year. And I think he also wins the prize for best dog name, which was Biggie after the notorious B.I.G. Couldn't agree more. That was definitely a favorite of mine. Next up, we have Michael Collins, CFA, founder and CEO of WinCap Financial, who tells us how ChatGPT can be a great tool to help maximize time for the busy advisor. Yeah, what I found really interesting was that Michael was actually an early adopter of ChatGPT almost two years ago, and he's now using it, like many others, to speed up his time to market with content. I just read a lot of, you know, as part of the research process, I read a lot of technology blogs, came across ChatGPT about, or it wasn't called ChatGPT then, but their previous product almost two years ago. I was able to get into their beta tests kind of through my academic credentials. So we've been using OpenAI's GPT stuff for close to two years. We've done a lot of experiment uh, with it to see like what we think it can and can't do today. So, you know, today we're using it to, you know, save, you know, 80% of the time it takes to write investment content. We do a weekly blog as a touch point for clients and prospects. And Normally, something like that might take me 90 minutes a week to write, but the way we can do it now with AI, it's almost like I have a six-figure marketing person that is just doing all the work for me, and I do put on a finishing touch. You know, what we found, we tried a little experiment linking, you know, directly feeding uh, data from FactSet and Yahoo Finance to, you know, effectively doing automated investment research. Wasn't as good as that. You know, so we don't think that's ready for prime time, but we are still looking at experimenting with ideas like that to drive efficiency. Because, you know, when you're building an RIA, 
if you could have the analogy I use, it's like instead of playing the violin, you're conducting the orchestra. So if you had one really good investment analyst, you can effectively scale them up and give them like the power of like five investment analysts because the amount of stuff they could save or, you know, time they could save just putting down thoughts and ideas, you know? So I think there's a ton of capability. I'm not as like ready yet to do automated replies and stuff like that, having an AI reply to my email, just because the high touch nature of our work, um, we like to keep it personalized. But for our kind of regularly scheduled content, you know, it's really helpful. You know, the other area where I use it, Endicott College has like a publicist that links professors to journalists. If you ever see like a professor interviewed on the news, it's usually through one of these like school publicists that get them in touch. And I get like five inquiries a day for like media quotes. So I can like copy and paste the media quotes in there. Tell the AI my opinion. Like my opinion on the subject is X, Y, Z. Respond to these questions with that opinion. And then it will, you know, respond with the the answers to all those questions. Then I just proofread it to make sure it truly is in line with my view and then send it off. And again, normally I'd have to ignore a lot of those requests. They would just be too time consuming. That allows me to really speed up content delivery. I really can't wait to hear what we're saying about ChatGPT and other AI tools a few years from now. The Active Advisor is all about active management. Next, we share some of the best insights into active management from our past guests. First up is Taylor Nisi, partner at Pleasant Street Wealth Advisors, who explains his core satellite approach to active management. Yeah, Taylor really does a great job tying his approach back to each individual client's needs and their goals. So when it comes to portfolio construction, we are firm believers in the core satellite approach where, you know, you're using passive for a big piece of your portfolio and you're using active uh, as satellites around it to achieve specific purposes. So for us, it's also not really a where, but more when, right? And for the past 10 years, we've had zero, almost low in, lowest interest rates in a long time. There's been you know, a lot of saber rattling with geopolitics, but not an outright war. And now you look around and all of that has changed dramatically. We're seeing volatility in the bond market, in the stock market. We're seeing geopolitical challenges with COVID, what's going on in Ukraine. So for us, it's definitely a much more active approach to investing these days. We think that this is really entering an environment of very clear winners and losers in terms of the companies and and the industries as we move through some major changes, you know, all the stuff I just touched upon. And then also, you know, thematically, things like ESG, things things like the AI, Web3, you know, all that, just navigating that whole change to infotech. We think it's really important to have a big piece of active management, both in, you know, your equity sleeve, in your bond sleeve, and really anywhere that complements your portfolio. Again, with the caveat, it all depends on your goals and your situation. Thinking back to Taylor's episode, I also really enjoyed his explanation of the significance of the pineapple in their logo. Next, Tunde Ogunlana of Axial Family Advisors tells us about seeing things from all angles. Yeah, Tunde was such a great guest with so many great nuggets of information and stories to share. He also has the best and possibly most obscure boat name I've ever heard, which is Plagius, a Sith Lord from Star Wars. All right, let's take a listen. I do believe in active management. I'm one of these people that's neutral long-term. I'm not a type of guy that takes sides on stuff like this. And like politics for me, like what's going on long-term, what's the long-term trend? And I think 
I'm not going to deny the stats that show that indexes over the long term tend to beat most money managers. That's why I'm not opposed to adding um, index positions to client accounts. But because of the type of clientele we have, we have a lot of pre-retirees, people that are within that five-year window, and then we have people that are retired. I find the individual security selection um, very beneficial. Next up, Ross Marino, founder and CEO at Advisor2x, talks about how even those who think they are passive investors are actually active. Yeah, this was another common thread with many of our guests as well, who made similar comments about it not being as black and white as being either active or passive, but rather even choosing to invest in passive indices is an active decision. I think even the people that say they are passive investors are actually active. They just don't think about it as much. Not only is the index have some level of activity, but they're tweaking their portfolios. Mm -hmm. So when I hear active, it's not just individual management, it's also portfolio management as well. So active, I think, applies to all of it, whether it's passive or what we would call an active management fund. And for our world, I I think a reasonable approach is core and satellite. Uh, That's what I'm most comfortable with. Part of it is that's how I grew up in the business. So maybe someone starting out today might see it a little bit differently, but I think trying to combine them instead of the, should you be active, should you be passive, I can't help saying, well, passive really isn't passive because you don't set it and forget it. And we all know that. We're like, well, I know, but Agreed. it's not a but. It's You may have passive indexes, but your portfolio management has a level of activity in there. So figure out how to combine them. Core and satellite is the way we approach it. Finally, Nate Lenz, CEO and co-founder of Concurrent Advisors, talks about how trends are shifting within active management. Nate provides a really interesting perspective here when he highlights the trend that he's seeing, which is firms moving towards actually outsourcing active management. I would say from a trends and objective standpoint, I, I think there's definitely a, a shift going on, right, towards more active management. So I would see that, that, you know, from our perspective, like I said, we're not prescriptive as how advisors do it, but, you know, where, you know, maybe 10 years ago, or even when we started the business called back in 2016, right, there was this and look, we were in a you know massive bull market, right? Everything went yeah. one direction. There was a huge, I think, at that time, trend towards passive, right? It's low cost. Let's strip all the costs out of it. ETF models. I would say that you know now that we are facing greater turbulence, right? We've got geopolitical headwinds. You know, we've got interest rate rises. We've got all these different pieces that are in play. I think that has you know brought a new emphasis to to active man, right? Um, so I would definitely say that from a trend standpoint, we're seeing a greater and greater appetite for that. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of our firms starting to shift towards you know outsourcing that component, right? There's only mm-hmm. so many in a day. As I mentioned before, empathy is probably the greatest trait. It's a relationship business. I think for a lot of our teams, you know, they find that they can add the most value dealing with some of the complex planning issues, right? And helping their clients overcome biases, right, that they might face and ultimately getting access to active management through using third-party managers, right? That's what they do day in, right? And they have teams that do. Yeah. Um, so definitely seeing a trend in that direction. Thinking back, there were so many great nuggets from Nate's episode from the bowls of lemons that he keeps in his office to his story about starting the business out of an RV. And the eventual tree growing out of the steering console. Such a great episode. Now on to my favorite part of the Active Advisor podcast. We asked each of our guests a series of quick fire questions that show us advisors are just like us. Hands down. I think we can all agree that this segment was the most fun that we had on the podcast this year. We had so many surprising answers and great laughs with every single guest. Totally agree. All right. 
best of 60 seconds incoming hidden talent and no directions really well. I'm actually really good at Andy work. I do myself in terms of like my home projects and whatnot. So I, I know how to pretty much do the electric and plumbing and all that stuff kind of self-taught as well. YouTube, uh, writing, finding a song to sing all the time. Growing up, I could jump really high. I'm a little older now, a little heavier. I can still jump pretty high though. I had this superhuman strength of being able to jump making pizza. I started playing the ukulele, also not very good at it, but trying country singing. Being able to measure the weight of a suitcase before getting to the airport. Figure skater. I can cook really well. Juggling. Hobby. Martial arts. I like playing guitar, fishing, and a little bit of golf. Golf and boating. Boxing. Make fighter jets, but I use the fuselage of a jet as a canvas. I like fishing. Basketball, tennis. Gardening and photography. Yeah, I have a fish tank. I love surfing. And that's a wrap for our special trip down memory lane on the Active Advisor. Huge thanks to our awesome guests and all of you for listening in. Your stories have made this year a blast. Take those nuggets of wisdom with you and we'll catch you in the new year. Happy holidays and stay active. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to The Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in. And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 11th of December 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts. There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk including the risk of loss. Stock markets are volatile and equity values can decline significantly in response to adverse issuer, political, regulatory, market and economic conditions. Fixed income investments are affected by interest rate changes and the creditworthiness of issuers. As interest rates rise, the values of fixed income securities are likely to decrease. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. 
As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023, Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. All rights reserved.